four books in about 12 years, and for anybody who's ever written a book, and if it's serious, which my books are all footnoted and heavily researched, and it's been in three different fields, you know, one in Kabbalah, one in the future of human experience through the studies of consciousness that have been done worldwide and that I've covered for 30 years in the new paradigm interviews I've conducted, and then this book um, in yet another um, dominion, if you will, another field of expertise, which is telepathy. What happened was in March of 2013, I had a waking day vision. And like many of your guests and many of your audience who are familiar with vision and being conscious and and reflexive as well as um, responsive to spirit, it was I was washing dishes. It sounds like a Zen story, but it's the truth. And all of a sudden, I was transported to a place on our property, we have a lot of woods, um, to a place we call the trail, which connects an open field to another wooded portion. And all of a sudden, I was surrounded in this vision by numerous white spirit animals, a white shark, a white whale, a white tiger, a white lion, a white bear, a white buffalo, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt, Karen, like I was standing in front of revered elders. It's really how I felt. So in a moment without hesitation, I said to them, knowing it was unique and very unusual, I said, why have you come to me and what can I do for you? And then in a voice that I could understand with basically a unified, we're all speaking for one together, they said, we want you to tell our story. And they made very clear they didn't want me to write a book about the white buffalo and then another book about the white bear, but they wanted me to tell their story as a group, and I didn't choose all 15. I chose five land mammals out of this group that came to me because they're all apex guardians of enormous ecosystems worldwide. The um, initial impulse I felt when they came to me was that this is what's going on worldwide, is that the animal kingdom is reaching out to the human kingdom and reminding us that we're collaborators. You know, we have suffered as a Western world in particular from this kind of um, species entitlement that we give ourselves to take and use and abuse and destroy as if that's actually mm-hmm. a right rather than abuse, rather than, um, you know, a, a t- horrible error on our part of judgment as well as action. And I think the bottom line of these apex guardians, and they are the bear, the lion, the elephant, the wolf, and the buffalo, is the ecosystems they preside over are very significant. We're talking about the savannas in Africa, the woodlands, the wildlands, the desert, the um, open prairies, the mountains. The Arctic. Yeah, exactly. So there's not an area of the world they don't in some way touch. But what I discovered about these particular animals, and I had befriended, or rather a group of white buffalo in spirit had befriended me years earlier, so I was a little aware of the fact that there was something unique going on in my life um, relative to these special species. And the reason they're special is, you know, some people have heard of the white lion or maybe they've heard of the white bear or the white moose or the white wolf or the white squirrels. There's so many different white-coated animals. The ones that are called white spirit animals are white unlike the other species, um, of like their, unlike the other kin of their species. Um, they're, they're not albinos. These are animals that have recessive genes from both parents. And they're actually, um, in the white bear's case at least, it's the exact same recessive gene that we see in a red-haired 
fair-skinned person, which is interesting mm-hmm. when you think of the Celtic image of a red hair, fair, fair-skinned woman riding a white bear. It's almost as if you know the ancient Celts understood something about this relationship between bear and us. But so the first thing that I recognized is all of them being apex guardians, what they said to me when I realized, you know, the degree to which we are in a mass extinction, the sixth grade extinction, um, is they said to me, save as many of us as you can. And they didn't say it like in an ego-centered way, like, oh, we're more important than others. What they were trying to say is that when you save an apex guardian like the bear, then you preserve the entire ecosystem under it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. these very mammals, the bear, the lion, the elephant, the wolf, and buffalo, are the exact mammals that men in particular like to kill. Um, and so the very animals whose ecosystems we should protect and not appropriate and destroy as we are, and the very animals that we should be preserving and making sure they're not endangered species, which all of these are or have been, um, is because without them, the ecosystems over which they preside will collapse even more quickly than they are already. So it's, it's so not I think, only. I think what you're, I think what you're saying is that they're, uh, you know, we shouldn't just be concerned about them, but they're critical to our own survival and the Earth's survival. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the Earth will do fine without humans. There's really, if you think about it, we add things for our own pleasure. Um, and our own, you know, desires, but the earth will do just fine without us. She will not do fine without her apex guardians of these ecosystems. You know, all of the species under them depend on this hierarchy of life. So what they're really Um, saying to us is get your stuff together, folks. Right. Um, so l- let me ask you about that event, though. Um, are Have you had any uh, sort of experience like that before? Um, uh, you know, I know you're a, you're a telepath, but uh, was that the first time uh, something like you described had happened to you, or is this a common occurrence for you? No, this has been going on since I was a very little girl, since the age of three, actually. I would say that okay. all of my books have been written as a result of a waking vision, and all of my career choices have come a result in the same similar fashion. Um, and as an animal telepath, I wanted, since the age of six, to be able to talk to the animals. And you know, and I thought, like lots of people, that I'd learn how to interpret a bird's call or a dog's bark or a squirrel's cheek mm-hmm. or whatever it was. But I discovered, as everybody does, that telepathy makes it possible to talk between all species, whether it's the elemental kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal, human, or spirit kingdom, and that all of us have this ability to communicate. So uh, why do you think it seems to be so easy and natural for you where, you know, others among us, you know, we wish we could talk to our cat even, uh, but, you know, we're not really sure there's, uh, you know, there's actual communication happening Um, I don't know specifically why me, so to speak. I know, though, that I had a near-death experience at the age of three and was saved by a personage people refer to as the Blessed Mother. And I think from that point on, I was just, Karen, always very open to understanding there was another dimensional reality that I experienced. At six Mm -hmm. years old, I had surgery and experienced a past life. 
Um, I've had some UFO encounters when I was a young child. I mean, a lot of things have happened to me in that kind of other-dimensional way, but I never looked at it as outside um, my... The norm. That's the right word. Yeah, it, 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 it was part of the orientation I had towards life. I didn't realize that it was not common until I was around 9 or 10. I gotcha. So you mentioned already that these skills, these telepathic skills, um, you know, helped you choose career paths, write books. Um, do you use those skills uh, for any other purposes in, in life? You know, do they come in handy uh, other ways? Well, you can use the ability, you know, your psi abilities. And I tell people, they go, well, how do you do it? And I said, well, it's very simple. I practiced for 40 years. And that's really the truth. It's like any talent, you know, whether you're an athlete or a remote viewer, an astrologer or a sculptor. If you practice at something, you eventually get pretty good at it so that right. you um, no longer doubt yourself. I think the biggest part about this multidimensionality, the omniverse we all are part of, is because our culture hasn't really encouraged us to develop our intuition, to develop our farsightedness, our you know, our sensibilities in that way. We often doubt ourselves. And I remember when I talked to the late Ingo Swan, who helped develop the protocols for remote viewing, he said the biggest problem for people is they like to name things and define them, and therefore we limit actually what we can assess from any kind of experience. So what I've learned and what I say to people is, firstly, I used dreams in this book, Karen, in a very particular way. Um, and dreaming I like to point to, to because everybody dreams and everybody can dream and everybody can enhance their dreaming abilities. And in this book, that's what I did for a year before I even submitted a proposal to my publisher, Inner Traditions Bear and Company. I spent a year dreaming with the animals, um, one animal at a time for a month, and I did it in cycles in order to see if I could actually come into rapport with them and their consciousness in my dream time. Um, I didn't want it to be waking channeled work. I, You know, I, there's a lot of that out there. Some of it's very valid. Some of it is a little questionable. But I wanted to see if through dreaming, which is just shamanic practice and has been for millennium, that in dream time you can ask, um, you know, can I do this? Should I do this? May I do this? The same thing a dowser asks before they get involved in changing a water vein or looking for minerals. You really need permission from the elementals you're working with. And so um, it was very important to me that I had the permission of the animals to tell their story in the way they wanted it told. And so I would dream with them and then write down what they revealed in the dreams. I didn't always understand it immediately, but within a couple of days, sometimes a couple of weeks, I really understood the stories they were trying to share through dream images. And if you like, I can give you an example of one. Sure, please. All right, well, so an easy one is for three nights in a row, I dreamt of these two men um, whose faces I knew but I couldn't place. Finally, on the third night, like I said, I'm a little slow learner sometimes, I realized it was John Warner, the former senator of Virginia, and Charlie Rose, a uh, broadcaster. And I was writing on the chapter of Elephant at the time, and I couldn't for the life of me figure out what they have to do with elephants. And I thought, well, maybe I used to be a political whistleblower. Maybe it was connected to that. Maybe I was a TV and radio broadcaster. Maybe it was connected to that. But So I decided to do a minimal Google search, and I went, John Warner, an elephant, and I typed in Charlie Rose, an elephant. And in both instances, 
stories came up where they had had Charlie Rose had done a program to save the elephants and stop the barbarism of slaughtering them for their tusks and their body parts, etc. And the other was John Warner, who had gone back to his alma mater, and they had a mock political convention, and there was a Barnum and Bailey elephant there named Jewel, who I did follow through her life, and she ended up being euthanized in 2013. But he had a very charming interaction, and I show a picture in my book of it, and what the elephant was basically telling us um, through this dream series was that whenever us, any of us perform an act of kindness, compassion, loving regard for another person, species, or element, it is remembered by that species, person, or you know, tribe, or collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. That's just a good example. I mean, it, I document throughout the book. You know, Bear, for instance, showed me how they taught the native peoples about smudging and burning with sage and finding the healing medicines that they needed. And Wolf took me on a I, wild ride. Well, and I think you have a story about the bonobos, too, that you befriended. Yes, uh-huh. yes I had interviewed Dr. Sue Rumbaugh, who was one of the world's um, experts on bonobo consciousness. And two weeks after she and I spoke, all of a sudden I see this bonobo standing in my bedroom. I can see astrally, so to speak. And my dog, Bella, White Shepherd, also could sense there was a spirit there and was very afraid. But Matata is her name, and I understood immediately who she was, and she had used Sue basically as the bridge, the resonant bridge to connect us. And then for the following two years, um, I carried on conversations with Matata. This was even before I started the book about her life, about her species, and she would tell me extraordinary stories about giants during the Ice Age. Um, Then she'd talk to me about the lab, and one day she was complaining of a headache, and I wrote Sue, and I said, what's this about? She was talking about the noise, and it wouldn't turn off, and Sue said, oh, yeah, she's right. The alarm went off today, and we couldn't turn it off, and it gave her a headache. So there was an advantage when I started with Matata because I had a human to check in with to see if Mm -hmm. at least the daily stuff was making sense, and it was. And Tata was just a brilliant door holder for me. She's really the one that showed me what's possible with animals that are wild, in captivity or free, domestic or Mm -hmm. creatures thousands of miles away. And, um, you know, I will be ever so grateful for for what she did by showing me how to do it. And as I joke with people, I said she'd call me up on the telepathic line. And sometimes I'd take her call. <laughs> sometimes I'd tell her, I have to call you when I get back from grocery shopping. But I think the trick, Karen, you asked me why me and why so many other people may struggle with it, is is not to doubt what you hear or what you feel. And yeah. it really doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. What matters is that your intention is to be of service. And that's the key word, service. Right. And the other key word yeah. is attention. You know, you have to, if you intend to be of service to the squirrel in your backyard and the squirrel says, I don't have enough water, well, then you can't just ignore what you've heard. You have to do something about it in the same way a human, a friend, or a child has said, can you help me? So I think right. sometimes we make the mistake of not believing what we sense intuitively, and then we don't do what it is we've heard, and that weakens then that relationship between your own inner self and yourself, and then your ability as a human to come into rapport with other humans or other species. 
Right. Well, and, you know, I think, you know, we're sort of afraid to feel foolish, but, you know, uh, so what? You know, if if we're if we're deluding ourselves, uh, but we give the squirrel water, what has it hurt? You know, um, I, I, I get what you mean, though. Uh, the, the doubt, uh, you know, the left brain just kind of uh, drives us a little crazy, you know, wanting proof. Uh, that this thing is real, that we're imagining is happening in our head. Um, but people, now, you know, I think uh, diminish imagine. I was gonna, just going to say that I think people diminish the role of the imagination because mm-hmm. imagio, the ability to impress matter, meaning to make form, comes from the imagination. Any building, anything that humans have made, anything we've done started out in the imagination. And we forget Mm -hmm. that this is the creative birthright of a co-creator. The imagination and the imaginal realm is um, a very high level of soul existence that we always experience. We just don't always honor. And the other thing I'd like to say about white spirit animals, if, if I might, just so I don't forget, is that the reason it's said by all the elders, whether it's Zulu or Cherokee or Buddhist or Hindis or others who revere these great white spirit beings, is that they're white coded to remind us of the last ice age, which they survived and helped humanity survive. And so it's said in all of these traditions that they come when humanity and the earth is in trouble, or as the Cherokee would say, when the earth is going to cleanse herself. So they have a particular association with prophecy worldwide that says they only show up when we need them. Okay, okay. Um, well, uh, I think in, you, in your book you show, uh, and you've been talking a bit about this, uh, how uh, dream uh, telepathy and trans-species telepathy, uh, you know, can be used to communicate with other life forms. Um, what, what do you mean by other life forms? Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, when we dream, we are using our soul body while our physical body rests and have the ability to go anywhere and any when. So let's say you have a deceased relative you haven't talked to or you didn't have a chance to say goodbye to. You can say goodbye now. Um, You hold a picture of them in your mind. You call their name three times. You feel what that feels like in your heart. And you will eventually, maybe not that first night, you do that consistently for a while and you will have a dream of this person or something that they did in your life will show up or a thing that belonged to them or somebody who knew them will call you or you'll bump into a stranger who says, oh, I knew your Aunt Dot. You never know how. I think the important thing about dream telepathy, um, communication with anything at any time, anywhere, is is again the intention is to be of service or to bring peace or to have healing. Um, and in doing that, when we align ourselves in, in divine right order, then the universe collaborates with us. It's just the law of physics. It's just the way it works. It's not magic. Okay. It's just yeah. physics. Um, you know, you emanate out and you receive back. We're always emanating and receiving. I kind of think of humans as biocapacitors or an easier way is as a lighthouse, you know. So we turn our light on and we cast mm-hmm. it out into whatever it is we want to light up, whether it's, you know, stones we're working with or a person who's ill or the town is having trouble with their water supply, whatever it is. And then you look at what comes into your view You pay attention to what comes into your view. And so like a lighthouse, we can turn on our light, 
That's our, that's our intention is to be of service by turning on our light, and then we see what comes into view. So in dream telepathy or in waking association just through psychic awareness or intuitive feeling, some people get it as a feeling, some people hear words, some people see images, some people taste things. Um, it, it doesn't matter in what form signals come. It's just that the entire universe is a signaling apparatus, and so are we. So what I like to okay. say is, is if you catch, it's interesting. I interviewed the Klingbiles and others who ran the Spindrift Institute when they were studying prayer, and they found that the most effective prayer is not prayer where you say, um, "Gee, you know, may this bird's wing be healed," but instead, "May divine right order be restored for this bird." And what they found after thousands of hours of experiments on mung, mung beans and fruit flies is that the greatest results resulted from thy will be done, meaning get out of the way with our intentional description. It doesn't mean our intention is still not to do good, but our intention is aligning with divine right order instead of the outcome we want. So a lot of animal communication efforts, I think people fail because they're trying to get something that they want either to prove themselves they can do it or to make a living doing it or to be entertaining about it. And the truth of it is the reason it works for some people so well, and you'll find people in your lives who do this work, is they really love the animals or they really love the Mm -hmm. trees or they really love extraterrestrials or they really love the grasses. But whatever it is, they have a love relationship with that which they're reaching out to. And that's what connects us is the love. So it's that makes really the love. Sense. Yeah, it's the love that brings everything into harmonic resonance, and then we're able to communicate. So, um, speaking of dreams, um, you stress in your book not to discount the visions and dreams of children. Uh, talk about that a bit. Well, you know, children until about the age of 10 are still very open to the spirit world. And the fact that we often um, dismiss when they say, well, um, little Johnny is wearing, you know, and then they go on to describe a Civil War uniform or something, or something from the Renaissance, and the parent goes, oh, they're just making it up. Um, Not necessarily. And even if they are, it doesn't matter. Because a rich imagination, you know, prophecy, I, I studied the prophets, and the three things all prophets have in common is courage, courage to tell and share what they see the imagination they have to have very strong imaginations because you have to be able to hold a lot of images simultaneously even things that you would never you know on your own dream up and the third thing is humility so you have courage imagination and humility and that's the cornerstone of prophecy and we're all meant to be prophets. We're all designed to be prophets, to speak for and with God, to speak for and with the Holy Spirit, and and to be of service in this recreation of Eden the best that we can. And the white spirit animals really just implore us to improve life around us, and I always add, and the life within us. Um, you know, I think it's I think one of the things about children and this time period, in Kabbalah it said that prophecy at this time period will come through women and children primarily. Um, and we ought to know that because there's an um, opportunity for children who don't have the same kind of judgment. And we can see it now in some of these extraordinary youth who are under the age of 12 
contributing ex- amazing discoveries and scientific um, additions to the world. So we can't discount what a child says just because they have young bodies. These are very old, capable souls incarnating now. And they know that we have some really important work to do as a collective global society, but it takes each one of us being who each of us is. And that's the other thing. I think, you know, we live in a strange, um, distorted culture that has created an idolization of, of wealth, of sports people, of Hollywood people, rather than a, a deep um, reverence for the quality of being a human. You know, it's, it's that each one of us has something very specific to bring to the world or we wouldn't have incarnated. And I think it's really right. important to appreciate that children live with that sensibility until somebody destroys that in them. And there is this abandonment of um, embarrassment until that is taught. Okay. Um, Well, Zoe, we are going to take a break. Uh, We're at the half-hour point right now. And uh, when we come back, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, we've been talking about the bear, the lion, the elephant, the wolf, the buffalo. Uh, They're all sacred uh, to different indigenous people uh, worldwide. Uh, But I want to have you tell listeners uh, what they seem to have in common uh, with the Buddhist or the Hindu or the Cherokee. Um, so uh, that's where we'll go in uh, just a minute when we get to, when we come back. Okay? Sure. All right. So uh, we're going to turn our attention for just a minute here uh, because we have a word for everyone from Joe Carson. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com.
uh, in that trailer for uh, Dancing with Gaia is the DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, uh, which goes even deeper into uh, all the material. And you can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at dancingwithgaia.com. Um, so, Zoe, let's uh, go ahead and uh, talk about what the, these white uh, spirit animals have to do with uh, some of these uh, different religious groups. And, uh, and then I'd like to hear about some of the animal champions uh, and their efforts to save these endangered species. Sure. Well, you know, I mentioned, firstly, that all of these, the bear, the lion, the elephant, the wolf, and the buffalo are all apex guardians over enormous scale ecosystems, which means if they don't survive, the ecosystem will collapse more readily. And so the resiliency of the earth depends on our preserving, and in the waters, the whales, the porpoise, etc., the shark, um, those animals that we often like to say are predators, they're no more predatory than an ant. They need to eat. Um, and so you discover that whether it's the bear or the lion, they would prefer to find scavenged food than to kill for eating. And so people are mistaken, actually, even about their biology. One of the things I found interesting about them that I didn't know until after writing about the book, and they shared it with me, is that we're talking about matriarchal societies, that all of these are matriarchies, and that the female bear and the female lion and the female elephant, the wolf is actually the only one of these where there is an equal relationship between male and female, and they stay together throughout life as a pack. And all the other white spirit animals I'm talking about, the bear, lion, elephant, and buffalo, um, the males are weaned by two or three years of age, and only the females stay in herds. And the males go off with other males and learn, and sometimes they're on their own, sometimes they're in small groups, sometimes they mate, sometimes they don't. Um, but what's so interesting about what the animals were really showing about the fact that these are matrilineal societies is that they revolve around the mother and her offspring, and they are the center around which entire cultures revolve in solidarity. And I refer this to as an ethos of care, and they made very clear we've lost this in humanity, and they are urging us to restore those values that were once associated and known as matriarchies. The other mm -hmm. thing is most of them point to star systems or relationships to the cosmos, the elephant to the Milky Way. She said to stir the Milky Way. The wolf is guardian of the Milky Way road. The bear is guardian over the north where the spirit comes from also the northern part of the planet where all longitudes come together. Um, the lion is considered the guardian of the entire planet, and um, the buffalo is the guardian of our soul, the tree of life, and soil or spirit. And so they, they play these extraordinary roles. I mean, you can look then to the sky system, and you can see you know, Leo, the lion. You can see Sirius, the wolf star. You can see the bull of Taurus, you can see the bear of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. So they they have played roles in societies for as long as there has been storytelling and sharing, whether orally or written. And I think what's so interesting about them is that they also, you know, tell us what we can do now in order to make the world healthier. Like for instance the, the lion, who in alchemy has always been considered to be that which can 
show us our golden-hearted purpose, how we purify and refine ourselves so that we become noble-hearted beings like the lion. And the guardianship of the planet then becomes our understanding as our purpose. Um, The wolf is really the guardian of the way in which we come and go from a body. Um, They're not just guardians of the dead, but they're guardians of the newborn. So they are like in terms of their relationship to the shamanic tradition, which is what had interested me initially, they are very much associated with shape-shifting. Um, there are, mm-hmm. In all cultures of the world, there are evidences of shape-shifting between wolves and humans, between bears and humans especially, um, and the others not as often and not as frequently in the literature. But I think when we... But- Go ahead. You're going to ask me something. Uh, well, but uh, well, well, yeah. I was, uh, uh, I, I was hoping, you know, and maybe you're working your way toward it. Uh, but I wanted you to share some of the things uh, these different animals have in common, uh, you know, with the Buddhist or the Zulu or the Cherokee. Well, it's not so much that the animals have things in common with the tribes. It's that these tribal peoples have always revered these animals as being their teachers. Okay. So the Hindi. Okay tradition and the Buddhist tradition revere the elephant, and the white elephant is considered holy and is only owned by the kings, as example, in Burma. Um, But the white elephant, Buddha, was said to have been in an elephant before he incarnated in the form of the Buddha. And um, when you understand their appreciation for the white elephant being the trained mind and being a disposition of compassion, and really the elephant to me is the most evolved species on earth, and exhibits a compassionate regard for creation in a way that humans, very few humans do. It's, I really think that they are Buddhic way showers. Um, when the Zulu revere the lion, again, it's because the lion can see into the future. And when you look at the Mesopotamian or Sumerian cultures, you'll see the goddess of the heaven with the two lions on a leash. So each of these animals and the cultures that have revered them, like in Japan, they used to revere the wolf to the point that they've said there's a white wolf, a spirit wolf, that accompanies people through the woods to get home safely at night. The traditions (laughs) worldwide, like the Cherokee or other natives who revere the buffalo and the bear, these are animals that um, are not considered separate from humans, just different from humans. They're kin. I think the biggest difference mm-hmm. for the Westerner is that we look at animals as somehow are beneath us. They're not beneath right. us. They're just different from us. They have a different purpose. But we know for a fact, and the work of Dr. Gay Bradshaw makes it so clear in her beautiful work, Elephants on the Edge, and she's the one who created transspecies psychology and the understanding of it both in science and psychology, is that animals have pain, they have joy, they have memory, they have culture, they have history, they have tradition, um, they have play, they have um, ritual. This is no different than humanity. It's just different than ours. And the mistake right. we made, and it's attributed often to, erroneously so to Darwin, Darwin considered his greatest work, the most important thing he contributed, was to show that there's no such thing as species entitlement on the human's part, that we are not superior to animals. We have a different purpose than animals. And that's what the indigenous peoples and all these tribes who revere them worldwide have always understood. The animal are mm-hmm. our co 
created kin. They are our collaborators, and they have a great deal to teach us, and they are elder-wise ones. Okay. Um, so uh, getting on to some of the animal champions uh, that are trying to uh, do what they can to save these species, um, do you want to talk about one or two? Sure. I think a wonderful example is Cynthia Hart Button, who Button, who owns um, and manages the White Bison Association in Ohio. And you can look them up, whitebison.org, I believe is how it is. Um, and she has spent like the last 16 years as a result of a deathbed prophecy of her father's and then her following the voice of spirit. Um, she actually inherited a small group of white buffalo who are purebred white buffalo. She then listened to what the buffalo told her that she should or shouldn't do, and she ended up traveling from, you know, from where I can't remember exactly where it was, Colorado, Arizona, um, California, to a number of states. Each time the buffalo said, we want to go here, we want to go there, and she'd arrange for them, you know, to go by truck. I say they thumbed their way across the country. But every place she took them, rain followed. So she would go into a drought area, the buffalo would be present, and then the rain would come. When you look at the history of the buffalo, um, they turn over the topsoil and they preserve the the biome, really, and they're so important to our spirit. What they told me is they were meant to be the center of the axis of our consciousness, particularly for North America. And the fact that Obama um, named the bison the North American mammal, I think, is a really good sign of Lakota prophecy coming true, that the buffalo are rising. But she's a wonderful example. Um, You know, I talk about Charlie Russell and the white bear and bears in general. He's spent his lifetime showing that whether it's the grizzly bear or the white bear or the black bear, bears do not want to harm humans and most of the time wouldn't unless we encroach on their territory, have harmed them before, you know, are risking their children somehow or their food. But in general, Animals are not interested in killing humans. It's humans who have created these perverse relationships by the killing that we do, which I call mm-hmm. animal side. Um, another person who's doing so much is Tamrak Song, who's working with wolves and is actually creating a sanctuary for wolf dogs. People have made a horrible mistake in breeding wolves and dogs, so they're neither dogs nor wolves. They can't be domesticated, but they can't completely live in the wild either. So. He's working to really educate people and show them that, you know, this is just not what we should be doing. Um, there, are, there are a number of people in the book, Dr. Gay Bradshaw I talk about, who has done so much to educate the scientific world about transspecies psychology and to appreciate that the entire industry of education has been built on primarily the torture of animals. And it's really true when you think about the scale of animal research that has gone on in our universities ad nauseum and continues to today. So she talks about, you know, why we need to stop what we're doing and become much more reverent about sentient life, that it's not just human life that is important, it's all life on Earth is important. So those are just a few of them, but there are many of them that I talk about. 
I'm curious. Um, I, I'm, sh- you know, I don't know if you saw it or not. I think it, it, you know, went all over Facebook. It was on television. Uh, that heartbreaking scene of that uh, uh, poor white polar bear that was uh, walking across the ice, th- skin and bones. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and they talk, and and they, you know, they talked about how you know that species is in danger, you know, with climate change and everything. Um, I, I, get, I guess I just wondered are you aware of anyone doing anything to try to help the polar bears oh there are organizations you know we're talking about there are hundreds of thousands of wonderful men and women all across the world maybe more maybe millions who are doing everything they can to preserve ecosystems and the species that live there whether and that's why i say to everybody is to focus on your own local communities because that's where all of us have the most power and where we have the relationships that we've established over a lifetime. And if everybody did this, you know, those who live in the Arctic and those who live in the savannas and those who live in the mountains and those who live by the rivers, wherever they are, if each community really collaborates together, we can make a profound change at making the earth more resilient. You know, the World Wildlife Fund in 2014 came out with what they called the Living Planet Report, and they pointed out that all of our Earth's wild vertebrate population, that's our mammals, our birds, our reptiles, our amphibians, and our fish, declined by 52% between 1970 and 2010. Um, we are now losing 27,000 species a year. It used to be a background rate of 1 to 10. And I, I joke sometimes, but it's really true, and it's kind of sad, but if we lost a soccer league one week and a basketball league another and a football league after that, Mm -hmm. the whole world would be in an uproar. But here we are losing 27,000 species a year, and they're talking about it's estimated that within 30 years, 50% of the entire Earth species will be extinct. So, again, go ahead. uh, you know, I, I know you and, and Bob are, you know, social justice activists, and, you know, and uh, if you ever listen to my show, you know, you know this is one of my pet peeves, is, you know, it, it seems like, uh, you know, starting with Reagan, uh, you know, people stopped being citizens or, you know, citizens of the world, and, you know, and the only thing that was important is that we became consumers. And, you know, it feels like, to me, we are seeing the effects of that now uh, because, you know, we've gotten to a point in society where, unfortunately, values like you're talking about, uh, you know, you don't hear anybody, well, you know, at least not the people with the big megaphones. You know, you don't hear people talking about these values, unfortunately. And, uh, I, and, and you know, to the detriment of, of humanity, the species, uh, and the planet, you know, I'm just hopeful enough of us awaken time uh, and, you know, reclaim our, you know, our role as uh, stewards of the earth and, uh, and, you know, and and to take care of one another again and, uh, you know, uh, cast off this, uh, you know, this uh, idea that, uh, you know, the only thing that matters is what we can buy and how much money we have. Yeah, well, that paradigm is ending, and it's basically, you know, we're we're watching now the arising of consciousness while the old world is coming apart, and that's just the way it works in any civilization. We always have rises and falls, just like the tide, 
just like the moon. Um, you know, there's times of ascension and times of descension, and we have both happening simultaneously. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I wanted to share a story, Karen, if you don't mind. At the end of my four-year odyssey with these Earth's great mammalian traditions, I dreamt I was standing beside a single majestic male buffalo, and he was really like a cherished elder friend to me or a tribal chief representing, when you think about it, the 60 million great buffalo that once grazed on the North American continent. And we were on a mountaintop plateau, and we were overlooking this entire cosmopolitan city where the range used to be. And I want to share what I said in the book, quote, standing together with such a broad-scale view, he shared that, quote, when any one of us, human, animal, plant, or mineral, fulfills our purpose on Earth, we experience the greatest love there is, unquote. And so I think the purpose in this book is not only the particulars, you know, the science, the biology, the prophecy, the elder lore, the, even the off-planet wisdom keepers that are associated with each of these animals and each of these um, tribal cultures, whether it's Lyra or the Pleiades or Alcyon. It's fascinating how many of them talk about their off-planet elders who help restore life when ice ages and calamities have happened in the past. But I, I just feel that it's very important for all of us to appreciate that each of us does matter. And people say, well, I don't have money, I don't have fame, I don't have power. Those are all irrelevant. Yes, those might be tools that some people are given in a certain incarnation and others aren't. We all have the power of prayer, we all have the power of dream, and we all have the power of free choice should we choose to use it. And my hope is that when each human appreciates how special they are, regardless of what our culture has taught us we are, we will understand that we are each divine beings. And if somebody in the audience says, well, I've always really cared about the animals, but I've never known what to do, go volunteer at a local animal shelter. Send $5 to one of the big organizations that does the work you can't do on your own. There are so many of us worldwide trying to really prepare the earth for resiliency, to restore our soil, to restore our water, our air, our animal relationships, human relationships, etc. Don't ever doubt the importance of the effort. You know, we won't be able to do it in a single lifetime. The work will go beyond our lifetimes. Um, we shouldn't get attached to any cherished outcome. There's a wonderful book called The Eight Laws of Change by Stephen Schwartz that goes through this. He looked at what makes for permanent change, and he found all these nonviolent actions, whether it was Gandhi or Martin Luther King or others, that there were these principles, like the things I'm mentioning, is that it goes beyond our lifetime. Don't have cherished attachments to outcomes, but do the good. Um, don't try to take credit for everything. You know, share it with others. I think the purpose of where we are right now in time is that while we're all having individual experiences, we are all together. And there's just no way out, as I joke. It's all of us together or it's all of us together. We may not find that sense of being part of the whole. We may not experience it every day. We might get cut off on the road by somebody who's just really unthinking. Um, we might not respond well to somebody in the grocery store the way we might have wanted to. You know, don't don't make a big deal of it. Just, as we say, get up off the mat and start again. Um, 
the the job we each have to do is each day, and each day we have free choice to improve how we are as humans or not. And I think that's the biggest change each of us can do is to come into self-management. And that doesn't happen overnight, but it also doesn't happen without self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others. You know, as an activist, I used to be a very angry, angry, angry activist. And it's taken me until my mid-60s now to really have so much compassion for those who suffer as a result of the wrongdoing they've done. Um, and that each of us can have more compassion for the bad choices that humans have made and are making. And it's through that compassion that perhaps we can find the loving key to open somebody's closed heart. Because the bottom line is that's what we suffer from. And that's what the lion said. Lion said, close the ozone hole and the hole in your hearts that keep you from knowing the love you're all connected by. And I believe this is true. It's not to say that it's all going to be easy and everything's going to work out just the way we want. It will work out whether it's the way we want or not. We can choose to be on the right side of decision-making, and that's really the bottom line to every day of our lives is what do we choose each day that we're alive. Well, good. That's good advice, and uh, I want to thank you for that for listeners because I'm sure many of them were thinking, so, you know, what is it I can do? Um, well, <laughs> I always say pray. It's yeah. the most powerful speaking humans, tool speaking humans have. We just don't know it yet. Right, right. Um, so, Zoe, uh, final question here. Uh, I mean, obviously you learned an incredible amount uh, as you put this book together, uh, but what would you, you know, what was the most profound thing, uh, you know, or, or effect uh, that this book had on you? I think truthfully the answer is love, love, love. That's what they're saying is that this is a universal law. This is not um, some sort of romantic notion. This is not naivete or childish. This is the law of the universe. And we might be a baby little planetary group of people who are just evolving into our awareness of stewardship, um, but this is the task at hand. And there is no choice in what we have to do, which is to create, you know, a right future for this earth. And that's the job each of us has chosen to be part of because we chose to incarnate. You know, we're, we incarnate not just for ourselves alone, but for the world. And so, again, I would just say to anybody who feels they have nothing to contribute, it's not true. A loving thought for your neighbor, you know, helping somebody you see in need, feeding the birds, cleaning up a stream, whatever it is, just try to make it as good as you can. It's not so much what we do, it's how we do what we do. So bring loving intention to it, bring great care to it, and know that we are all very powerful beings if we just stop doubting ourselves. Good advice. Good advice. Well, so thank you so much uh, for this book and uh, for all the work you do in the world. And uh, just uh, one last mention of your website or uh, any last comments you want to share with listeners. Sure. Well, I post white animal stories and pictures that people are sending from around the world at the website, whitespiritanimals.com, and I encourage you to get the book from Inner Traditions. They're a wonderful publisher, and all their other authors are stupendous. White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change is the title of the book. And to remember that your dreams are a powerful tool for sharing love, 
peace and resolution and not to ever discount the intuitive hunches you get, that these are very important things to refine and cultivate and to know that what you feel, think, say, and do changes the world. Well said. Well, um, tell Bob and Laura hello for me, and uh, thank you very much uh, for being my guest tonight. Thank you so much, Karen. I really appreciate it. Okay. Good night, and best of luck with the book. Right out. So just a quick word uh, from Laura Perry, and I'll be right back. The Minoans of ancient Crete, an egalitarian society, where women were honored, where the sacred feminine was revered, where peace and prosperity reigned for centuries. Hi, I'm Laura Perry, and I'd love to help bring the ancient Minoans to life for you. Explore Minoan spirituality with my books, Labyrinth and Horns, and Ariadne's Thread. Embrace your creative side with the Minoan Coloring Book. And discover the wonders of divination with the Minoan Tarot. You'll find all these at Amazon and other good online and local bookstores. Find out more on my website, lauraperryauthor.com. Well, um, I mentioned that I was going to be sharing some um, articles that Pat, our roving uh, goddess reporter, uh, sent in to me, but um, I have a feeling that uh, there might be a glitch in the audio tonight. So I'm going to save these stories uh, for next Tuesday when I'm back with you. Uh, I am actually going to be making uh, a presentation to uh, you folks out there next Tuesday rather than Wednesday, uh, as is usual, because I'm going to be taking some days off for the holiday. But I'll be sharing with you a paper that I delivered um, called uh, Strengthening Our Muscles of Empowerment, and that will be um, uh, Tuesday of next week. Uh, But uh, rather than... um, Rather than do the uh, share the stories from Pat, in case the audio is sounding a little weird to you out there, uh, I think what I'm going to do is uh, share something with you that I have not shared in quite a while uh, because it's uh, pre-recorded, and uh, many of you may know Lane Redman, uh, beloved drummer, uh, has been on the show a number of times. Um, she had given me permission. Uh, to use uh, a number of uh, uh, her special music and drumming. And uh, just to close out tonight's show, uh, I'm going to let you listen to Lane Redman's final Delphic Oracle. Uh, So thank you for tuning in tonight, uh, dear listeners. I hope you enjoyed the show, and um, I'm sure you'll enjoy this as well. Good night. Stay warm and stay dry.
above all things speak the truth. Know thyself. Know thyself.